Genesis 25, verse 22. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. Uh, I'm Brian Bales. <laughs> and I'm Jeremy Hodges. And uh, we'd love to talk to you about the Bible today. Specifically, we want to discuss Exodus chapters 25 through 27 today. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading. We want to demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible. And we want to emphasize what the text says, no more and no less. Before we start, we do want to let you know how to get in touch with us. You can find us on Facebook. If you search at Walking Through the Book, you'll find us there very easily. You can also email us at walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. And uh, again, really happy to be uh, coming to you today with uh, these words that we we believe are of eternal import. Um, Jeremy, how are you doing today, man? Doing okay. Uh uh, it's kind of a weird time. I don't know when this will get published, but when we're recording it, it's right in the middle of the stay-at-home orders in several right. of the states. Uh, things have gone a little bit differently since they were last week, and so we're all sort of um, all sort of holding on separately at our own homes, away from one another. So uh, opportunities like this allow us, which I'm really glad for, to be able to spend some time with some uh, some of our brothers in more of a virtual space, but it still allows us to have good conversations. Amen. Jeremy, why don't you let everybody know where you work and what you do? Well, I am uh, right now I'm preaching uh, with a congregation that um, we would normally meet uh, and just north of D.C. uh, But our congregation, I guess, right now is spread out all over uh, the D.C. region. We do have some members who live in D.C. proper. We have uh, some members who are in uh, Maryland. I don't know that we have too many in Virginia. We may have a couple. Uh, but Wildercroft is the name of our congregation, and uh, we are right now just trying to do what we can uh, to make uh, some virtual meetings possible. So really what we've been doing is we've been publishing some message on Facebook right now. Wildercroft uh, Church of Christ is where you would find us on Facebook. I think it's probably the, the best way to get a hold of us. Now, once we're able to meet again, you can search for us at wildercroftcoc.org. Very good. And uh, Brian, why don't you let everybody know who you are, what you do, what you what your work is, and uh, also kind of go over sort of the flow of the program, how we're going to be doing this today. Yeah, so I, uh, like Jeremy, I'm uh, working as an evangelist, um, but in Savannah, Georgia, on the eastern coast. And like you said, um, kind of a weird time right now. Hopefully when this gets published, uh, we'll be able to have all things back to normal. Um, but we have a Facebook page, Garden City Church of Christ, and we have a, a website as well where you can find information about the church. Uh, sermons are posted there. Location is posted there along with 
um, other information that you might um, want to know about if you visit visit the website or are curious about the the church. And we'd love to have you in the area and um, show you hospitality if you're if you're passing through. We're going to be staying here. Um, the way that we do the uh, podcast here is is very simple, but um, it's so encouraging. I hope that as a listener, you find um, it as encouraging as we all do as we're talking through these things. What we do is read the text at first and make initial observations just from the scripture. Uh, we try in that beginning part of our study to just focus on what what the text is saying itself without going too far outside of it. And after that, we look at themes and we see if we can make some connections to other um, other areas of God's working with his people. Um, so that could be looking back at Genesis, could be other things happening in Exodus, could be other things in the, the history of Israel or the prophets or, you know, the Psalms or in Christ and with the church. Um, so we'll just be trying to make some connections in the themes and we'll try to end the, the podcast looking at some applications. And I think this uh, section is particularly interesting because of its, its nature. Um, so this will be an interesting episode with a text that I think most listeners probably either skim over or <laughs> don't want to read at all. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward to this, this episode, um, especially with the, the text that we're going to be studying. Exodus 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. This is the contribution which you are to raise from them gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the best breastpiece. Let them consecrate. A, I'm sorry, not consecrate. Verse eight. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture. Just so you shall construct it. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet, and two rings shall be on this one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. 
you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark of the the testimony which I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long and one cubit wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. You shall make for it a rim of a handbreadth around it, and you shall make a gold border for the rim around it. You shall make four gold rings for it and put rings on the four corners which are on its four feet. The rings shall be close to the rim as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, so that with them the table may be carried. You shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars and its bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lamp, the lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand from its one side, and three branches of the lampstand from its other side. Three cups shall be shaped like, an al- like almond blossoms in, w- in the one branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower, so for six branches going out from the lampstand, and in the lampstand four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. A bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it, for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it. All of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it. Its snuffers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made from a talent of pure gold, with all these utensils. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. You shall make them with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. The length of each curtain shall be twenty-eight cubits and the width of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be joined to one another, and the other five curtains shall be joined to one another. You shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set, and likewise you shall make them on the edge of the curtain that is on the outermost on the second set. You shall make fifty loops in one curtain, and you shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite each other. You shall make fifty clasps of gold, 
and join the curtains to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle will be a unit. Then you shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle, and you shall make eleven curtains in all. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall have the same measurements. You shall join five curtains by themselves, and the other six curtains by themselves, and you shall double over the sixth curtain at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the first set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost on the second set. You shall make fifty clasps of bronze, and you shall put the clasps into the loops and join the tent together so that it will be a unit. The overlapping part that is left over in the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that is left over, shall lap over the back of the tabernacle. The cubit on one side and the cubit on the other side of what is left over in the length of the curtains of the tent shall lap over the sides of the tabernacle on one side and on the other to cover it. You shall make a covering for the tent of ram skin dyed red and a covering of porpoise skins above. Then you shall make the boards of the tabernacle of acacia wood, standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of each board, and one and a half cubits the width of each board. There shall be two tenons for each board fitted to one another. Thus you shall do for all the boards of the tabernacle. You shall make the boards for the tabernacle twenty boards for the south side. You shall make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, two sockets under one board for its two tenons, and two sockets under the other board for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, twenty boards, and there forty sockets of silver, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. For the rear of the tabernacle to the west, you shall make six boards. You shall make two boards for the corners of the tabernacle at the rear. They shall be double beneath, and together they shall be complete to its top to the first ring. Thus it shall be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. There shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. Then you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards of one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the rear side to the west. The middle bar in the center of the board shall pass through from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold as holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan which you have been shown in the mountain. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being made of gold, on four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps, and shall bring in the Ark of the Testimony there within the veil, and the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. You shall put the mercy seat on the Ark of the Testimony in the holy of holies. You shall set the table outside the veil, and the lamp stand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. You shall make five pillars of acacia for the screen and overlay them with gold, their hooks also being of gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. You shall make an altar of acacia wood. 
five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Also you shall make its pans and receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze. And on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath, that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side, there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, one hundred cubits long for one side, and its twenty pillars and their twenty sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings one hundred cubits long, with its twenty pillars and their twenty sockets of bronze, and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of fifty cubits, with their ten pillars and their ten sockets. The width of the court on the east side shall be fifty cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side shall be hangings of fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and their three sockets. For the gate of the court there shall be a screen twenty cubits long, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. All the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout, and the height 5 cubits made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. So, okay, one thing that I thought of during this, and I don't know, uh, you know, maybe our maybe our normal way of doing this might be out of out of the out of the way today, but I, I, I watched, watched a video the other day, and Uh-oh. you know, in the middle of all these things, you're going to watch a lot of videos, but uh, watched a video with this couple that was in uh, in Israel, 
and they went to a reproduction of the tabernacle, right? So I, I don't know how many places do something like this, but supposedly it's produced in the same way, you know, or at least to the same specifications. And I'm thinking about this, and I'm reading this, and I'm, I, I know based on just seeing that video, they did not use the same materials at all. Right. Uh, not the same specifications, but this, this would be like, how much would this cost today? Oh man. It'd be it would, okay. It's, it's exorbitant. And that's one yeah. of the things that's interesting oh, about God. this. So where did they get all this material? And if we, for, if we forget that when they left Egypt, they yeah, left right. with a great amount of gold, then we can totally right. miss where this came from. God sure. gave them the riches to make this and the people freely gave of what God had given them to make this. Yeah. Yeah. And Exodus 38 gives the amounts and that's rare. Um, yeah. I don't think the amount of money used for something is mentioned again until the temple is constructed. And right. So there, well, there's not only that, on that, they had to stop the people giving because they they yeah. keep giving so much. They say, okay, right. we got the stuff. We're good. We're good. Thanks. Right. Exactly. And it shows that the, the construction was not based in greed. It wasn't, oh, you want to give more? Well, man, let's crank up the amount of pillars or boards that we've got in this thing if we've got more money. It was, no, this, there's a deliberateness. It's to be this amount and that's all. And that's all that's needed. One mm-hmm. of the things that's interesting about this is... Uh, and I, I didn't notice this until this particular reading of it. What, with all the blue and the purple. So first of all, we know that those are not easy things to make. Those are going to be expensive. Yeah. But secondarily, uh, there is an entire curtain that goes over the blue and purple stuff to keep it from bleaching. And I don't right. know that I ever put that together. I, I mean, I understood that there was a covering because these are two part tents and we, we don't have the most complex of tent making culture around here. We'll get like a pup tent or we'll get like a, like a camping tent when we go camping, we have nylon and stuff like that. But these people, man, they understood tents because they lived in them. And so this idea of it being a completely two part tent, you've got the, the sort of the square verticals that seem to be the blue and the purple, but you actually, yeah. it seems to have an even stretched thing over the top of that, which again, right is interesting for our, from our standpoint. Yeah. I think that really reflects humility in God, which I think is a major initial thing to uh, think about with this. I mean, you think about in chapter 25, verse nine, uh, I'm sorry, verse eight, you know, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. You know, God was on the mountain, but he wasn't really yet among them really. And I think there's just so many lessons about humility in all of this. For one, think about the contrast between these chapters and everything else in Exodus leading up to this point. You know, the judgments on Egypt, that is so exciting. It's exhilarating. It's very action-packed. God leads them to the wilderness. It's exhilarating. It's action-packed. He gets on the mountain. He descends. There's booming thunder. There's noise. There's threats of death. You know, Moses ascends and then the, the elders even go up and they eat with God and they see his appearance and it's, it's, it's incredible. You know, there's blood of the covenant that's thrown everywhere in the previous chapters. And then you get here and it's like, okay, make this building now and measure it out very specifically, you know, and then, and then there's 
two layers of leather that are put over its surface. So it's not even something that by appearance looks very magnificent. And I think there's going to be a lot of important themes and applications with that. You know, God's presence ultimately would not necessarily look very interesting. And it's clear by the materials inside that God could have made the exterior look overwhelmingly awe-inspiring, especially even the fabric that was on the interior as well. You know, so from the outside, you see this leather-covered structure with the entrance looking, you know, it gives you an, an inkling of what's inside because the entrance looks amazing. And I think, again, there's, I think there's themes to that as well with Jesus showing us the way, uh, the entrance, but while Jesus doesn't, you know, of, of appearance look very interesting. But I, th- I think all of that is related to just how a relationship works, for instance. Um, you know, like my marriage, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same for every, every marriage, you know, everything involved in marriage is not exhilarating or overwhelmingly fascinating, you know, and it's not like somebody necessarily looks forward to the drudgery and, and the mundaneness sometimes of the day-to-day service and, and intimacy of a relationship with, with your spouse. But that's what makes it work. That's just the reality of a good working relationship. And so I you think- mean it's not the way that Disney portrays it? Bro? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this, this, is, this is like a reality. Like God is inviting us and inviting Israel into a very real relationship with him. You know, and, and if we're not willing- to find joy in the seeming mundaneness of a relationship with God, I think we miss the point of the reality of having a real relationship with God. And I think so many people stumble over a stumbling block where they want a relationship with God, like you're saying, Stephen, to be like a Disney movie or to be like a Marvel movie. You know, they, they want it to be exciting. They want to be able to perform miracles. They want to see miracles. You know, they want they want feelings and sensations and you know, they want to hear, you know, the greatest sermon every Sunday that they've ever heard in their life. And they want applications that are going to change their life. And their, their next week is just going to be a whole new week, nothing like anything before. And people never learn sometimes to appreciate the simplicity and humility of God's character. And I think when, when you miss that, you miss everything. And so I think this, these, these sections here, I think, are extraordinarily important. And I think God draws attention to that importance in him saying things like, they're doing this because by this, I'm going to be among them. My, my question would be like, is there any significance to this being a mobile thing? Mm, like yeah. it's something that's not going to be established in one place. Like God could have, you know, said, okay, at the foot of the mountain, you're going to build this great pyramid or great temple or something like that. But he didn't do that. No, in mm-hmm. fact, in fact, when David wants to build him a house of cedar, he kind of right. kind of gets onto him, and he said, "He says, all the time that my house moved around, did I ever say where is my house of cedar? I, 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 I never <laughs> right. once even said that. That's not ever. That's never been a thing for me. Right. And shows so God loves me among people. Just say that one more time. I just shows God loves being among His people wherever they are. Well, that right. not just that, but he he intentionally chose this methodology yes, to be right, temporary right. because you can't put him in one place. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. The other thing I think is interesting, and I, I do have to say this. Uh, so this is one of my few uh, kind of beefs with the new American standard. Uh, porpoise skin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, I'm just, I'm just going to say, I'm going to say in, in, in the desert, uh, porpoises yeah. are thin on the ground. <laughs> just not a lot of them. 
I mean, that's where like you gotta you gotta trust the King James, the Badger skins. Right. I, mean, I don't know that I I'm gonna. Have to, this is no no offense to King James. There's not a lot of Badgers there either. Right. And well, then you got Dolphins. I, mean, skin, I think in another God will provide. So, don't so, you have faith, Jeremy? I I do, but I'm also a, a realist. So the, I, I think that there is a likelihood that this is either an extinct animal or an animal that is is unclear. But, something we don't really have. But a lot of the other translations have kind of gone with the blue dyed leather uh, to be uh, kind of an accompaniment to the red dyed leather. So somehow they had found a way to make the, the the leather to be dyed blue. Mm-hmm. Dinosaur uh, skin. No, sorry. I don't know. I, yeah, Ken, Ken Ham is probably pretty convinced that that's dinosaur skin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, that's not the last. That's not. This is not the last time we hear of this leather. Now we don't have a whole lot of this other than the the building of the tabernacle. But in Ezekiel sixteen, when he describes the beauty of this girl he found in the field, and as he lavished gifts upon her, one of the things that he puts on her feet are sandals. It's made of this this blue leather or this right. porpoise skin, and, and and so it's interesting that when he describes all the things that he did for his people, he's the one who gave them mm. this super expensive fancy blue leather. Yeah, so good. And so I just I'm fa- I'm fascinated by the way that, that that's used. So I do think there's just there are so many things um, about this though that you know are are so helpful to think about. Like one of the things is God's presence can easily be taken for granted. Again, you see with the materials, God has the capability of making making things look magnificent. Um, and it's it's interesting that in Genesis one, God creates things himself and those things are magnificent. He created, you know, the stars and the heavens and the sun and the moon, and he's entrusting this structure to the hands of men. So there, there's almost like a degrading, humiliating nature to that, that God is giving these, these things that are meant to have a sense of permanence, things that are supposed to represent his glory. And instead of him just speaking it into existence, he's allowing people who were just slaves to participate in constructing something and weaving fabrics that are supposed to be somehow representing the glory of this God who exists outside of the sphere of all the magnificence of all existence. Um, and this, again, just the simplicity of all of this, I think is, is helpful to appreciate and value why that simplicity is so helpful to learn from and not just overlook like the fact that, for instance, these three chapters and the chapters that talk about this in general and the temple and Ezekiel's temple, the fact that these are so easy to skim over, I think is also related to the principle of why it's so easy to skim over the gospel. You know, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 40 starts measuring out this glorified temple. And you look at that and you you just kind of sign, you're like, oh, boy. Oh, Your eyes kind of glaze over. Right. But you have to think like, why was that such a joy? It's because he understood right. what that represented. And it's the same with, with Jesus. When we appreciate what this represents, when Moses would appreciate what this is, he wants to know every detail there is to know. And that's like us with Jesus. Jesus is so easy to overlook. He's so easy to devalue. But when we understand who he is, what's within him, we want every possible detail of whatever helps us to see the glory of Christ and to measure out every aspect of his life, of his ministry, his teaching. 
we don't want we don't want anything missing. And we know that God could give a more glorified version of Christ. Um, we see that in the Transfiguration when just for a moment the disciples had fear when they saw his face shine a little bit and his clothing get really white. You know, so obviously Jesus could have taken a more glorified appearance, but God was deliberately putting Jesus in a form to be taken for granted. So I think, you know, and I'll, I'll stop talking here in just, just a minute with this particular point, but I think it shows that God was not taking the people for granted. If God was willing to take such a humble form where he was hiding so much glory in the veil of this structure, I think by, by implication then, it shows that God does not take you for granted. God does not take random Egyptian person who joined with Israel, you know, and walked with them through the wilderness. God does not take for granted random Israelite person who feels like an absolute nobody among the camp. God takes nobody for granted. God sees something so much greater than what you see in appearance. It doesn't matter what your occupation is. It doesn't matter what uh, background you have. God will never take you for granted because of what's within and what is within is what matters to God. And I think that's what they were to learn from the tabernacle as well here. Well, I mean, the idea of what is within is also a part of this because it's evident that he is using materials that become more and more, um, that become more and more glorious as they grow closer to where he is. You have the gold, all the solid gold at the very center. Yes. You have the gold covered things one level out, then you've got silver things, and then you've got the bronze things on the outside. So it yeah. just it it always kind of blows my mind that he is demonstrating that the closer right. to him that you get, the more glory is demonstrated. Yes. Amen. Yeah. Yep. And I'll just say I'll just say with experience working as a jeweler with metals, I mean gold tarnishes like over time, but it takes a long time for it to really build up that kind of patina. Mm-hmm. Um, silver will tarnish much quicker than gold. Uh, if you don't polish it and, you know, keep it up. Bronze is best suited for an outside situation. I mean, bronze is, is very good for, you know, holding up outside. Whereas silver, uh, it's a softer metal. Gold is going to depreciate very quickly in an outside situation. I would think, uh, I may be wrong. I'd have to look at that further, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think that that thought is very, is very clear. Um, that the closer you get to him, the more magnificent everything becomes. Right. Yeah. Yep. It's like Colossians chapter two, where he talks about how in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. One of the things that's fascinating about this, and we've talked about this before, <clears throat> that you have the veil, and so you have this intentional separation of God right. from the people, although yeah. he's dwelling among them. But I also don't want to overlook the idea that the the ark itself was covered with what is referred to as the mercy seat. And on mm. top of the mercy seat were the two cherubim. Right. Cherubim previously had been a separating influence as well. And so cherubim were placed on the outside of the garden to keep the human beings from being able to approach the tree of life. Mm -hmm. Cherubim oftentimes have a a sense of judgment about them and also awe and majesty. However, in this case, the cherubim are designating where God's uh, dwelling is, Mm -hmm. of course, in a representational fashion, but it is there that he is going to meet the people for providing them mercy. So all of the separation in here, 
and all of the holiness and distinctive nature he has, yet he is also using those very same things to be able to approach his people, to be near them, and to provide them mercy. So good. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Right. It's like um, uh, God's holiness in heaven and us not seeing him with our eyes. You know, at first it seems like, well, why doesn't God just appear right right to me? You know, I wish that God would. And I've had someone say that, you know, if if God wanted <laughs> me to believe in him, he would just come and appear to me. And you fail to every realize. Time that has, yeah, every oh, time that's ever happened, people throw themselves on the ground exactly. and scream that you're going to die. Exactly. And so when, when you're trained to know who God is, you realize that any separation that exists actually heightens the glory of our ability to receive mercy, which is a good thing. And so it is a good thing that in the present form, we cannot see God with our eyes, that we do not see him in the flesh, but that we believe in him by faith. And there's, you know, I'm thinking too about the cherubim or cherubim that's going to be in the temple eventually, which are, I mean, seems to be the way that Solomon built them are these massive forms right. towering over the ark at that time. And it's just like that. This is just me. I'm, I'm weird. Okay. So I, I remember going to the Smithsonian as a kid and, you know, uh, being really intimidated by the life size, uh, you know, giant whale statue that they had just hanging above and just like that, that huge thing, just like, man, you know, what if that came alive? And I know, I know that's stupid, but like the thought of going into the Holy of Holies and you have these massive statues of the cherubim, which, which will, you know, bring about it, this sense of awe and this sense of judgment from that standpoint. And I, I think about it in that way as well. Um, these seem to be directly on the ark. So they don't seem to be mm-hmm. like massive things. Of course, right. they're not going to be lugging those things around everywhere. Um so no, I, I I think the points are very well made there. Uh, I think you have a sense where God, He has this unending love, but also this unending sense that that there is indeed an authority uh, associated with that. Yeah, and I and I think that shows you know your comment in Jeremy's that God was not constructing this to separate Himself from His people but he was inviting people into his presence. I think one thing that the tabernacle tabernacle makes really clear, especially as it's before the 10 commandments are received, but after some of the law has been given, you know, that this is obviously a testimony. In fact, the language of the new American standard says that multiple times that the ark itself is a testimony. The law, which is a testimony is going to be put within the ark. So I, I think this shows that just like when Jesus spoke in parables and he said that the way he was speaking, which again, the consistency of God Parables on the surface seem like nothing, but within it are the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus, when he spoke those things, he was separating people away from him, but he was actually through the parable inviting certain people in. And it was a matter of their faith, the condition of their heart, their love for God, that would make the difference. And I think this tabernacle is the same thing, that if all people saw was the physical form of it, they would stumble over the stumbling block. But if people got the concept like David, when he talked about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, being sheltered in his house, when as a person from Judah, he would never go into the physical house of God. He understood the principle of it being a testimony, which made it something that he realized was inviting him into God's presence and not separating him further from his presence. And, and, you know, in, in with that, 
uh, you talked about the simplicity of the structure, but this is the direct copy of what was given to him um, based on the plan that Moses saw on the mountain. Mm-hmm. That means that there's a there's a heavenly reality that the that the tabernacle is reflecting. Right. When they build the temple, the first temple, it is a copy functionally of the tabernacle structure. Right. Not given to a human being based on heaven's uh, plan. Right. But it is based functionally based uh, on the tabernacle structure, but bigger, I guess, grander from a physical sense. And then once you have the restoration temple, you have a copy of a copy functionally. Uh, It is then uh, made more extravagant and bigger over time, especially with Herod injecting all the the millions of of dollars, um, equivalent millions of dollars that he did. Uh, So by the time that you get to the first century, you have a copy of a copy of a copy. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And if you've ever worked with copies, (laughs) you know that by the time you get to the copy of a copy of a copy, it, it's got it's it's not doing the same thing. Right, there's a degradation there. Yeah. What was what was that? What was that movie? Multiplicity, where what's his face made a copies of himself, and then one of his copies made a copy, and it was kind of like kind of running <laughs> around being stupid. What was that movie? I, I think it was Michael Keaton, wasn't it? Yeah. Anyway, so a copy of a copy doesn't really a copy of a copy of a copy. It it doesn't have the same thing. And right. so all the fascination that's going on in the first century with the physical temple, it's kind of misguided. Yeah, right. the thing too like we're talking about how humble this is but then Herod's temple is anything but humble I mean it was a gleaming gleaming jewel set atop uh, Mount Zion and uh, Mm -hmm. but of course you know you think about the motivations for that too I mean Herod didn't build that because he wanted to worship God he built that because he killed all the Hebrews children and you know, he just did so many terrible things and he wanted to be loved in some way. Uh, so it's just, it, 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 it's really absurd when you think about it that way. And especially it becomes absurd when, you know, in Matthew 24, when his disciples are like, look at these amazing buildings. Yeah. Right. Lord. Yeah, right. The Lord's like, Oh, you see these, not one stone's going to be left on yeah, another. Not impressed. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, that, that, that's something to think of too. Like, so, even though God is saying that uh, that you know this is where I want to abide, He's also willing to have it torn down. He's right. also willing to have it destroyed. And in fact, um, I mean, here's the thing too. That's what, he, that's wanna, what he says in Jeremiah. He said, yeah. "You want to know what I'll do to, when you guys are unfaithful? Go find Shiloh." 
Oh, that's what I was about to get to, actually. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, what it seems happened in Shiloh was either, I don't know if the tabernacle was destroyed. The text doesn't tell us that specifically, but either way, something was, was shaken at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, we have evidence, by the way, of the tabernacle. I mean, I guess there was some form of tab- tabernacle that they had in the time of David before the temple was, was built. But, uh, you know, that's the interesting thing about it too. If, if that was destroyed, they could go back and rebuild it to some degree to these specifications. And David would have had the wealth to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know. I, do you guys have any thoughts on that? No, well, I, think, I think it, I, it oh, go on, go on. Right. I think with the fact that it could be destroyed, you know, I, I think that that also gives a, a purpose for it um, as well. You know, I think you're, you're supposed to value the things that, you know, are, are expensive, that belong to you. You know, if, if you have something that you've invested a lot of money in, something that has a lot of sentimental value, you know, you, you protect that. And, you know, when God allowed the tabernacle to be, to be destroyed, it's because something very valuable was not being valued by the people at all. And so he was willing right. to let it be stolen from them to help them to realize that. And I think that's one of the points of how expensive everything was and him taking contributions from the people. God isn't being arrogant about the building. I think he's helping them to understand that his presence is something that they should value. And he's constructing it in a way where he's leading them to inherently, even if they have a worldly attitude, the whole point of this physical system is converting people who are worldly minded and, and, and who are living in sin to be able to be converted by their their interactions with these things that are among them that are testimonies of greater things. And so how expensive this would be, how much they would invest in it, everybody contributing to it, that that was, I think, going to give them a sense of ownership of God's presence, which would be very important to their faith. I, I find it fascinating with all of these things that, that, are fo- that, are, that are the focus. He doesn't spend just a great deal of time focusing on the lampstand. Mm. Yet it is interesting that modern Judaism focuses so heavily on the imagery of the lampstand. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I think, I think a lot of that has to do with the Maccabeans, right? It does. That exactly. Whole, that's, that's, where they, that's, that's exactly what that, that's where the change comes from is that right. you have a, a celebration of a time when they were strong in the flesh, as opposed to the mm-hmm. focus on the things that God put his focus uh, on. Yeah, it's good. That's a really just, good point. I'm just fascinated. Now, another for us, it's interesting because there is no single lampstand. When Jesus appears before the seven lampstands, it's seven lampstands. Right. And right. so as opposed to a singular lampstand with seven sort of cups or, or, or candlestick holders or however you want to talk about it, uh, it is completely independent and, and decentralized. Mm-hmm. And so the decentralization of his presence is sort of an interesting element to the seven lampstands versus the mm-hmm. one lampstand with seven mm-hmm. uh, cups. Right. Yeah. And with, well, with the, um, the lampstand, go ahead, um, go ahead, Brian. Something, something that I think is like small, but maybe worth thinking about. Um, so the lampstand and I think the cherubim as well were, mm, they were hammered work and they were one piece. And in Exodus 35, 30, you know, the person who makes the, the lampstand and all of that was, uh, you know, God said he was going to fill him with the spirit of God and wisdom, understanding and knowledge for craftsmanship. 
So I think that's really important because I think that's a potential connection to the apostles uh, writing letters that were written by men, but were perfect for all time afterwards. So, you know, the lampstand, it's a guy who's hammering on gold, you know, so you imagine like, oh, I mean, that's going to not, that's not going to turn out good, you know, or maybe it would have a lot of imperfections, but no, I mean, it was one piece, it was hammered by the hands of men, but that one piece was sufficient to be used for every generation afterwards where the tabernacle would be. Just like the epistles are letters written by men, which then would be used for all time afterwards. You know, so when, when God wants something created for his service by men, he's able to inspire them to perfectly accomplish that, even if the hands that work it are imperfect. I think for me, one of the most important applications is 1 Corinthians 12, um, with unity and diversity. 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about how the church, every member of the church has equal value because they're all put in place by God. You know, and in Exodus 25 through 27, the value of the materials is of a person's estimation different, but to God's estimation, it's all equally holy. And so everything was to be treated as equally holy. So there is ultimately no distinction. And that's 1 Corinthians 12, when uh, 12.22 says, you know, the body, members of the body which seem to be weaker are actually the ones necessary, the ones we deem less honorable, we need to bestow even more honor so that there be no schism or division in the body. So, you know, God has always designed his presence to dwell among uh, a diversity of members that are joined together by the fact that they're all mutually holy, that they're all set in place for a specific purpose. And, you know, there are multiple pieces oftentimes fulfilling similar functions, but that doesn't mean they're less valuable either. There's only one Ark of the Covenant, but there's a lot of pegs, there's a lot of boards, but that doesn't mean the boards aren't valuable just because they're not serving the function of the Ark of the Covenant or the the table or the lampstand. Um, just because, you know, something's not a curtain doesn't mean it's not holy. So I really think 1 Corinthians 12 related to the tabernacle is, is just an extremely important application to notice. I think it really helps um, the monotonous, dry reading, at least as it, as it would seem, really be revealed as something very relevant and really important. You're talking about value. I think the another part of this value that we need to take into consideration, it is expensive mm. to have God's presence. Yeah, God does right. not come into yeah. our lives cheaply, and we should never consider it to be inexpensive to have yeah. God's presence yeah. in our lives. Exactly. But yeah. as expensive as it is, as we can see in this, 
God does not expect us to be able to have to front that ourselves. Mm. It is expensive to have God's presence in our lives, but he is the one who provides it for us. Yeah. So we're thinking about a New Testament application of this. It was expensive to have God's presence in our lives through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Yet he is the one who provided that. Yeah. He did not expect us to be able to put that together ourselves. No human beings, no matter how much they desired, could have been able to front the cost. God always is an expensive presence. Yet when his people need him the most, he's the one who puts up the cost. Yeah. So just kind of on that, that same idea, um, in chapter 26, there is an emphasis with the curtains <clears throat> on them being knit together. It says it over and over again, um, that you're to, you're to join them together either with the, the clasp. So like verse six, for instance, says you shall make 50 clasps of gold and join the curtains to one another with the clasp of the tabernacle will be a unit. The boards had bars, you know, and, and sockets so that they could be joined together. The sockets had two openings so that the sockets, two sockets are put into, or two boards are put into a, uh, two separate sockets, but then those sockets join other boards to the board. So there's just a lot of unity in that as well. And I think that language relates to Ephesians and uh, Colossians. Um, just like turning in my ripped up Bible here, it's going to take a second, but um, in Ephesians chapter two, verse 21, it says, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what the joints are supplying. So the tabernacle could be a divided structure. You know, the, the, the um, curtains and the boards were not inherently assembled. They were not inherently one piece. They had to be deliberately joined. And there were tools to join them together. They were, they, the tools were provided. But if the tools were not used, they were, it, it was divided. So you have a divided building being knit and joined together by what God is supplying. And in Colossians 2 and chapter uh, 3, it mentions that love is that bond that brings together into unity what otherwise would be divided. Yeah, I think it's one of these things that we could pull a lot of things into this and almost like if you really went step by step, you could find a lot of, uh, a lot of richness in this and a lot of, a lot of aspects that, that maybe we don't immediately consider in terms yeah. of the tabernacle, and the yeah. meanings behind it. Um, but I, I think a lot of times it's not just for us on a podcast to kind of hammer out and say, well, this means that, and this means that, and this means that, uh, as a reader, it's important for us to make those associations and make those connections for ourselves and not allow, you know, someone else to make those connections for us. Um, but, uh, but I think overall you see the intent, you see the purpose that God has in telling them what to do. In fact, and I don't believe this text really deals with it, but it God's going to even provide some sort of divine or supernatural help to those who are building these things. Uh, so there's a sense with that where God takes care of his people. God gives them everything they need to be successful in this. I mean, the question might come up, how, how are, how are Egyptian slaves going to be able to build something that is, uh, you know, looks nice or that, you know, is, is useful without 
experienced craftsmen and tradesmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, but God takes care of that as well. Um, so that's, that's just some things to think about. I think one of the applications here too, is that we can follow God's commands. It doesn't matter, oh, yeah. uh, how skilled we are in, you know, Paul, in fact, I think, I, I believe that Paul in first Corinthians is saying that he was deliberately limiting his ability to speak. Not that he was, uh, trying to put on a show, Right. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He was limiting himself. And he, people read those passages and say, well, Paul Paul must have been a bad speaker. I don't believe that. I believe that Paul, I mean, having right, been uh, tutored at the feet of Gamaliel uh, with the yeah. amount of knowledge yeah. he had, yeah. there's no way he was a lousy speaker. But in fact, he chose to put those things to the side for the sake of the gospel. And 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 that's the thing. that As, as nice as the, the items are here, I think the points that you made, Bryant, are very well said that that this is a humble structure. This is not something that people are going to look at and say, wow, it's amazing what they've accomplished and what they've done as a people. No, in fact, it's going to be quite the opposite. And when we see them come into Canaan, uh, it's going to be a situation where they will be uh, under uh, underestimated at every turn uh, and God's going to help them conquer the land. Yeah. With, with the poles being inserted, um, into some of the, well, into the, you know, items that they were going to be carrying. Um, numbers will talk about how like really actually everything was going to be carried when they would, you know, walk through the wilderness. Right. Because, what have you. Right, because it gives the full, the full description of who carries what, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, some objects are obviously going to be way heavier than others, but that doesn't matter if it's all holy, you know, you, you carry it just because it's, it's holy. You don't allow it to be left in one spot just because you're feeling lazy, you know, and Galatians chapter six talks about how we are to bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So if, if we are all who are saved mutually members of the body of Christ as this structure that love joins together, even though otherwise we would be separate, you know, we have to be careful to recognize that God created us to be carried. And numbers will even say in the King James version that when he's instructing them to carry the, the, um, the pieces, he actually calls it a burden. Um, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a good way of thinking about it. So just because we have burdens that are heavy and some people have heavier burdens than others, doesn't mean that that's to be neglected or despised. God created us to be carried by one another. And I think that's, that's important with the tabernacle as well. It was a structure designed to be carried. Absolutely. And, and we carry with us, like, I mean, Paul talks about carrying with us the body of Jesus daily. Uh, so it's this sense of remembrance there. Uh, I mean, I, I was just, uh, I was just teaching Jeremiah the other day and, you know, that passage where he's talking about, I remember you in the wilderness, you know, right. I remember your betrothal right. and, and, you know, so God, God remembers us and there are ways that he, you know, gives us to be able to remember him. Uh, and, and I think this is one of those ways that, you know, God was going to have this sort of as a memorial for generations. Uh, I mean, uh, the generations to come would know of what had happened with the tabernacle out there in the wilderness. Thank you guys again for, for being a part of this. Yeah. Next time, Lord willing, we're going to be getting into Exodus 28 and on from there. Uh, Until that time, we hope that you study well and be lights to God's glory.
The music used in this program is graciously provided by Symphonia. Symphonia is a nonprofit foundation whose purpose is to compose, publish, and promote hymns for congregational worship. Find out more at symphonia.com.